on this week's dose, we have Ritwik Pavan, CEO and founder of Krava, the company building modern backyard spaces and reimagining the way we build housing. Yeah, this was an awesome conversation. Ritwik has always been entrepreneurial, having started several businesses as well as an iOS app throughout high school all the way into college. Yeah, after taking a short break after his last venture, he became quickly infatuated by the housing shortage and began truly immersing himself in the world of construction and real estate. In the interview, you'll hear about how Ritwick came up with the idea for Krava and why he is so passionate about solving this problem. Yeah, we dive into the details of how they designed and built their first prototype, which you can see if you're watching this on video in the background behind Ritwick, and how really the whole process works for somebody to get one of these units built and installed. Mm -hmm. You'll also hear about their short and long-term goals as we discuss the broader opportunity to address the housing shortage through a totally reimagined automated production and installation process for home building. Super innovative. It was really awesome to go and see the Krava headquarters in person, get out of our, mm-hmm. our little studio here out in the hill country. So thanks to, to Ritwick and the Krava team for having us out. Great hosts. It was awesome. We're excited to share this conversation with you all. And here it is. Is he here, kid? You gotta just go for it. Don't think about what comes after or what came before. You just gotta bend your knees, take a deep breath, and jump. This is Venture Pill, your weekly dose of startups and venture capital. We break down recent startups in the news and interview founders and investors to help you stay informed in the evolving world of venture. All right, we welcome on Ritwik Pavan, CEO and founder of Krava. We are out in the hill country in, <laughs> in near Austin, Texas here, on site with Ritwick. It's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for having us out here. Yeah, beautiful hey, space you got. Thank you, guys, and thank you for making the drive out here. I know it's not too close to Austin, but it is uh, hill country, like you said, and it's a beautiful spot to be building. Absolutely, and a beautiful building behind you right there. So we've got one of the coolest backdrops of any episode we've had <laughs> of, uh, of really rivaling the Austin skyline of our, of our yeah. downtown <laughs> recording location. It's beautiful. We got the tour of the Krava K1, right? A, a prototype unit you've built here. We'll dive into all that. Um, so awesome to be here and see how where all the magic is happening. So thanks for having us again. Absolutely. Yeah, very excited to dive in. I guess we'll just start out with like your early entrepreneurial journey. Tell us about that. Like what were your early inspirations for starting uh, entrepreneurial ventures? Yeah. Um, so I, I always had a knack for wanting to solve problems. Um, early on in middle school, I remember uh, back then jailbreaking iPhones and trying to find <laughs> a way around uh, my parents banning apps that, you know, on the phone. And uh, yeah. this evolved to um, high school when I really got into coding, wanting to build apps. So completely different side of what you see today with a lot of hardware focus. Um, was very interested in the software side and, and thought that it was pretty cool that you could pull, put an app up on the app store and make money. And this was back in 2014. So I ended up building an app that was top 20 in the app store, top three in games. Oh, wow. And... Um, completely just out of luck to be honest it was a stupid <laughs> game based off of the flappy bird rendition and um <laughs> it was spring break of 2014 and uh it ended up doing like half a million downloads and wow. uh, i had run ad impressions on it and uh 
from the revenue I generated off the ads, decided to get into software development and helping out other founders. Did that for almost eight years um, through college. And um, the it, the simple, it was like a simple theory that, you know, people are wanting to get into apps, startups are wanting to get into apps. So we had built for, you know, uh, and we had built and consulted for a few hundred founders. Um, wow. Did that over eight years, grew it to seven figures in revenue, um, had bootstrapped it to about a 40 person full-time team and did oh, all nice. this through college and eventually got tired of the agency business. I wanted to go solve problems myself, um, which led me to my next venture of aid which was a venture-backed startup, and we had built solar-powered wireless cameras, went up on street poles, and used computer vision and ML to collect real-time curb data, parking data. And we sold that to cities um, under a hardware-as-a-service model, Mm -hmm. and we were able to scale uh, pretty well into a handful of cities, including Austin, um, which was one of the reasons we moved here. Mm -hmm. And uh, we essentially helped cities with traffic congestion, real-time data, uh, an API that could help drivers find the nearest available spot in real time through Google Maps or Apple Maps. Um, got our cameras out in New York City and Times Square. Found that to be pretty awesome. exciting. Uh-huh. Uh, left that last year and took some time off and said, you know, if there's an idea that excited me as much as Vade did, uh, I'd pursue it. And for me, that was affordable housing. And that was more specifically um, the housing crisis mm. um, and identifying ways to tackle it. So that's what led to Krava. I love it. What an incredible journey starting from, I love how it starts with jailbreaking iPhones, right? It reminds me of the iPod touch days, uh, but an awesome journey along the way there. Curious what kind of footage your cameras in Times Square in New York City got as well. <laughs> Man, there was no, they're, they're true. It's a city that never sleeps. And, and, and on top of that, people really don't care for parking there. I mean, there's no lines, there's no, you know, um, indentations for like where to park. So people just park wherever. I mean, it was probably the most, it was the most difficult city for us to capture any data. I mean, we yeah. had a manual verification on it and it, it was a, a task of its own. Sure. Um, learned a lot through the, the journey <laughs> and there was, uh, you know, plenty of bike lane violations that, you know, and, and safety concerns that we were yeah. able to evidently catch. But um, yeah, that was a previous life. <laughs> Best city in the world right there. Yep. <laughs> yep. And so with all those different startups you founded, what were some of the biggest challenges along the way and how did you overcome them and learn from them as you continue to build out your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And there's different challenges across different industries, but also there's common challenges within any startup or venture. Um, with Linker Logic, I'd say the challenge is now looking in hindsight where the smallest of challenges in comparison to the problems that we're going after at Krava, but I think everything was a stepping stone. Like you mentioned, started off just in software. Um, back then, the problems were more focused on uh, being in high school and not knowing how contracts work and then <laughs> getting screwed over a few times and realizing, okay, maybe we need to have proper contracts in place. Right. Um, and then evolving to Vade, which was focused on GovTech and selling to government, learning how to um, you know, attend conferences, be able to sell and understand the sales cycles of government, uh, getting into hardware. So kind of was a stepping stone from just software to understanding how hardware and software work together. Um, and then now evolving to Krava, which is almost nearly fully hardware focused and more around, there is a big software play with the automation side and being able to scale up, but definitely much more hardware heavy than both the startups. And um, the biggest thing I can learn, I, I've learned so far, and probably the team agrees, is that construction is an absolute shit show. <laughs> um, there are so many regulations that come in place. Um, it's There's a reason why people have not found 
a solution to what I would say is the holy grail of construction, which is affordable housing. I mean, there are so many regulations in place, um, a lot of red tape, and um, quite truthfully, it, it is a very ambitious goal. Um, and we've worked hard to figure out what is the ideal solution in which we want to do construction. Because not only do we want to accelerate the speed at which construction is done, we want to identify a way to be able to successfully scale it as well. And um, that that's proven to be a very big challenge. Yeah. yeah. And this is a perfect location for that as well. Austin feels like the capital of construction right now, especially <laughs> yeah. downtown Austin. Yeah. There's a Right now is a, a good time for the discussion of, uh, I don't know if you all are familiar with the Yimbies and Nimbies, but it's yes in my backyard and no in my backyard. And <laughs> uh, just the other day in, in the, uh, you know, downtown, they were at the Capitol, there were people protesting about it. And oh, wow. um, Austin is, is definitely looking to add on more of a supply in housing. So uh, there's been a bill that's being you know, hopefully being passed that allows for three units in the backyard if you have the space for it. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that there's a lot of pro-housing, definitely in Texas, um, which is favorable for us. But I do think in in the grand scheme of things, it's not just going to be Texas. I mean, California, there's a big push for uh, ADUs, which are otherwise known as accessory dwelling units, Mm -hmm. which is just a term for essentially backyard homes. Um, And there's a big push all over the the U.S. really right now, um, especially in urban cores, um, just simply because of the fact that we have a shortage of about over six million homes now. So how are you going to solve it? Hopefully through private markets and not just government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what we love to talk about on VenturePill is like the innovation that comes out of the private markets and working in tandem with governments. Um, we're, we're really curious, like how did you even find out that this was your passion? Like, was it a light bulb moment? Like, how did you think of this? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit of a light bulb moment. I knew I wanted, whatever I did next, I wanted to get into the real estate, real estate side. It was shocking to see, you know, one, uh, for our generation, how much, uh, how bearish people are even in the likelihood of being able to afford a home. Mm -hmm. And those numbers were scary to see. Um, and when I was looking at the industry as a whole, there's, there's a massive untapped opportunity, but it, it felt like there were so many solutions that were being tried and um, not working. And, and I just spent a few months trying to figure out why is it not working? What is the right way and the right approach? And um, felt like we could provide some value. And, and it's such a big market that, you know, um, and, and there's multiple players that can coexist. But ultimately, I, I believe that any company that is focusing on housing is a net positive for the, mm-hmm. the community. Rising tides lift all boats situation. Right so, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and so on that note, what's the competition like within the ADU construction space and how is Krava differentiating <clears throat> from the crowd? Sure. So within the ADUs in general construction space, there are several ways of doing construction. You've got Icon, which is right here in our backyard in Austin, which is focused on 3D printing. Really cool solution that they've built. And then you've got um, you've got companies, the most generic way or the most standardized way of doing ADUs or construction is in terms of modular is volumetric. And what volumetric means is that, uh, in, in a big, let's say a hundred thousand square foot facility, there's a company that's focused on building the entire unit, complete start to finish electricals. Everything is done as if the, the, you know, final product that you're seeing behind us. However, the challenge with volumetric is that it's, in my opinion, not the most scalable way of doing construction. Um, because of the fact that 
It requires a wide load truck in most scenarios to be able to be delivered. Uh, it requires a lot of real estate space. We're talking, you know, 100,000 square feet of space to house even a, a hundred units. Mm. Um, and then on top of that, once it is physically delivered to the address, which we're talking, you know, anywhere from 10 to 50, 50 grand uh, in delivery costs, wow. then you need to have a crane that actually lifts the entire home and puts it in somebody's backyard or on their land. I simply found that this was not going to be the most scalable way for us to be able to increase housing because one, not every neighborhood's going to allow for a wide load truck or crane. And then two, the, the added costs decrease any margins that you could get um, and also add costs to the homeowner. So the reason we went with a panelized approach is what I call it. Um, uh, the panelized approach was because we felt like it was the most scalable. It would allow for customizability. We had three different principles we agreed to as a team. We wanted to make these as easy as possible to assemble. We wanted to make these as easy as possible to ship. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible to customize. And in order to follow those three principles, we felt that having panels was the best approach. Um, having standardized uh, panels, so modules that, you know, for the walls, the windows, the doors, um, the power. And, and by being able to do this, we've had this vision that we could allow for homeowners to essentially go online, be able to configure the space however they want, where they want windows, where they want doors. And historically, that was very difficult to do with volumetric, mm -hmm. um, where you know they would have to get updated design and they'd have to do all sorts of stuff. I mean, we've made it so our modules are interchangeable. So you can change it as you need. If you don't want any windows and you want to make it a golf simulator, you can do that. If you want to add windows around the entire thing, you can do that. So uh, those were the three kind of core principles we followed, and, and we didn't see um, other companies taking our approach, specifically starting with studios, where we're focused on under 200 square foot spaces to start off with, mm -hmm. and then evolving to bigger units. Because what we saw in the market and what the market was telling us was, you know, right now, so many of our competitors were going for the holy grail of construction. But truthfully, you look at the prices, 600 square foot, and you're seeing 300,000 tag to it. Other than California, I can't think of any other place where people are willing to really pay <laughs> yeah. that price, and even California. But um, we wanted to start off with a high-end product that was focused on a small square footage that would be an addition to a home, which is more of a want. It's it's like an exclusive product that is catered to an audience where they have the uh, liquidity to be able to purchase you know, home office, yoga studio, guest bedroom, gym, and then use the same system where we've already built a modular bathroom to build backyard homes as we scale up. And this was a way to avoid regulation and, and be able to find a path to scale. Sorry, yeah. I, have, I have just a couple follow-up questions to that. First of all, just to backtrack, when you say panelized, does that mean essentially it comes in parts and at the location you would assemble it like Legos, snap things into place? Yes, I should have prefaced that. And it's really like Legos for living spaces. So when we deliver it, it's delivered flat packed. So what I mean by that is all the modules and the panels, the wall modules, they're all delivered and stacked up on a truck um, where we've made it so that the each module is light enough, less than 100 pounds for two um, contractors to be able to move it without the need for a crane, without any of that. And even for installation, don't require anything more than a ladder. Mm. Um, so that's what we took as an approach to be able to deliver and install. So Got this it. will require two contractors wherever it is in that area that the homeowner lives. Correct. To for who hires them? Like how does so that we work? we take care of the entire yeah. process. We take care of the delivery, the installation, the assembly, and procuring everything to actually manufacture as well. Yeah, and I love the customizability you mentioned as well. Like a whole box of windows would be awesome. Um, <laughs> one other question from your previous response is just: Could you elaborate a little bit more on why precisely 200 feet is what you're prototyping with right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And for those that don't know, in over 95% of the U.S. municipality, um, 
anything under 200 square feet classifies as a shed. In some areas, it's under 120 square feet. So our beach head, which you're seeing behind us, is 120 square feet. And the idea behind this was that uh, we would not have to go get a building permit to be able to install these units, and we would also be able to test our system at the same time, as opposed to a lot of these other companies um, that are focused on the modular homes have faced challenges with being able to scale adequately because of the fact that uh, you know, for example, with cities, naturally, uh, they move slower than you would anticipate. Mm -hmm. And so even though California has passed a bill or has said that, you know, within 60 days, we'll approve or deny a permit and tell you what's wrong. That's not the case. And <laughs> so several companies, unfortunately, went under because they were relying on this whole idea that um, that, you know, they'd be able to get a permit in time and then be able to deliver and create a repeatable sales process. We wanted to avoid that, at least in the near term, build a, a, a you know, a business around the studios initially, and then evolved a building backyard homes and mm -hmm. uh, infill units as we get to positive cash flow. And that and that sounds like another differentiator, competitive advantage for Krava versus the competition. Absolutely, which makes perfect sense. Yes. So tell us a little bit more. There's like a lot of use cases for these units. You mentioned a bunch just now. Like I'm sure people will come up with more uses for them. How are you focusing marketing efforts? I know you have a large wait list. I guess tell us about like the demand and what people want these for. Yeah, so the number one use case that we've seen based off of customer feedback and responses and applying has been home office by far. Mm -hmm. um, outside of home office, we've had other use cases, home gym, yoga studio, guest bedroom, music studio, uh, man cave. Podcast um, studio. Podcast studio, <laughs> yeah. which we have in the back. Um, nice. But there's been there's been a handful of use cases with home office being the number one, and I mm -hmm. think it's just a rise in work from home employees, mm -hmm. um, and also uh, high interest rates that are essentially people are deciding be between you know, do I use this uh, additional room and now I've got a kid on the way, or you know do I want to just add a home office and separate my personal space and workspace? So mm -hmm. handful of different use cases that we've seen over the past few months. What about as an Airbnb? style rental yeah so airbnb kind of gets into the concept of like most people who want it as airbnb are looking forward to our our products that we plan on expanding with mm -hmm. which includes a bathroom so you know ideally for airbnbs they want to have the full suite where they have additional bedroom bathroom and um you know have the adequate space for that um but we have had a few airbnb owners that have said you know i'll just add a murphy bed in here and make it an additional bedroom so yeah there there's there is absolutely a market for that as we scale and so let's move forward a little bit here. Let's say we're homeowners, Sam and I. We live on one Venture Pill Drive, <laughs> and we're looking to build an ADU in our backyard. What's the process like in terms of actually coming in, coming in contact with Krava and going through the customization process? You mentioned you know delivery and assembly is all taken care of as well, but would we just go onto the website, start clicking around? Yeah, so we've just introduced our new site where you can actually go design your space. Um, so typically when some uh, a homeowner goes to our site, you're able to go design your space, have an idea of all the different finishes and upgrades. Once you have done that, um, if that's how you've come across to us, um, you know, one of our team members will receive the, um, you know, bundled pricing and all the features. And then we send the homeowner a render of exactly what their unit's going to look like with all the finishes that they selected and a quote, uh, an estimate on the price. And then what we do is generally have a follow-up consultation. We try to understand, do you have any HOA regulations? Um, you know, are you looking to have the unit uh, permitted if necessary? Um, and what is your actual zip code or, or city municipality code and we want to make sure that we're you know uh that all the check 
check marks are there. And then once that's done, we ask for a 10% deposit um, for the unit. And once we are beginning production, that's when we ex- uh, take half, half uh, you know, 50% deposit of the remainder. And then uh, we begin production of the actual modules that are required to put together your unit. And when it's ready for delivery, we reach back out, let you know, hey, your K1 is ready for delivery. Um, you know, ask for install dates and times and then uh, deliver the unit to you and then work directly with a licensed contractor to come set it up. The entire unit is set up within a day. That's incredible. That's it, awesome. It sounds just like a magical process, but I know it's nothing but that. <laughs> we um, want it to be a magical process for the customers, yeah. but it's nothing like that on our end, of course, especially no. at the early stages. <laughs> Obviously not. I was just listening to Elon on Joe Rogan, the most recent episode, and he was just describing over and over with the Cybertruck how much more difficult it is to manufacture versus just build a prototype. So talk to us about that transition. Like, How is that going to scale? Yeah, so uh, from day one, we went against a, a few of the architectural, um, you know, theories, and and we we wanted to treat this as a product, not a home. And more specifically, we followed DFMA, which means Design for Manufacturing and Assembly. Mm-hmm. So we thought through every module, we thought through every component that is going on, and we wanted to make it as easy as possible for us to scale in the long term. We knew in the short term it's going to still be difficult, but um, a lot of the ways that we designed our system and the components was made so that eventually down the road, and you know, as we continue to scale, be able to have an assembly line where we were the long-term goal was to have an 80-20 rule where 80% of manufacturing could be done through automation, through you know an assembly line uh, machinery, and then 20% would still require human you know, labor mm-hmm. and, and human efforts. Um, and so in the, to start off, I mean, there's no easy path. I mean, we had to build manually and um, hire contractors and be able to work through it. But the plan over time is to be able to get to a repeatable installation process, a repeatable build process, and then the long-term goal being being able to essentially turn this out. You go in, customize your system, we get the order, we're able to have an assembly line, build it out, and then deliver same day. And so it feels like we've been circling the wagon throughout this interview, and the wagon being local municipalities having tough permitting and just regulations around having an additional unit in your backyard and zoning, the list goes on. And so you mentioned like you, when you're in the process of building an ADU for a potential customer, you're going to check the municipality code, make sure everything works. But how do you address those challenges, which can be pretty significant in this space? So right now, just to preface, we're not focused directly on ADUs, which involve plumbing and, you know, essentially a full out unit, um, the dwelling part specifically. We're focused more on what is classified as a shed. So with most customers, there is no issues around 200 square feet. Sometimes they'll need HOA approval or need us to send some drawings over. But for the most part, uh, it, there there are usually no issues. Um, and that is how we generally bypass regulations in the short term. Mm-hmm. Now, with the long term, we have a team focused on just making sure that every day we get an idea of which city is passing regulations. We want to be on top of um, on top of that so that we know which markets we want to hit in the future. Um, but several cities, I mean, if you go do a Google News search of ADU laws, you will see every single day there's a new city, city talking about it. And so our goal is to stay up to date on that right now. It's still a process, and we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket and bet on um, government moving quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the long-term future goal. And 
you know, our big vision is to enable homeowners to be able to turn that unused space, their backyards, into a revenue generating asset. So that's mm-hmm. the long-term vision. Got it. And one question actually tracking back to the, we live on one venture pill lane, one venture pill drive. <laughs> uh, what happens if my backyard is on a hill or I've got trees everywhere or, you know, it's uneven land, just not really feasible to have a whole nother unit? Yeah, on it? that's a great question. And, and one of the big uh, factors that we looked into with cost was we wanted to remove as many variables as possible from the homeowner. So we do have an option where we've created our own adjustable legs, uh, which I don't know if you can see in the video, but uh, we've created our own proprietary adjustable legs that can cater to if if the uh, you know your backyard is not fully leveled, we can adjust it as necessary. And we've also been able to add concrete footings that go on the ground and then be able to mount these adjustable legs to it. So if you don't have a concrete slab or if you have a hill or if you have an uneven surface of land, we are able to do it with our adjustable legs as well. That's awesome. Yeah, we, I don't know if we can see them quite over there, but but they are they are pretty cool looking. Um, yeah, so. we, uh, we over-engineered the, the prototype versions to handle way more weight than they <laughs> needed to. So we're now actually, and, and we wanted to do that with purpose um, for our first units. Um, but now we're scaling back on that because they're quite expensive to actually manufacture. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, so it's awesome to hear like what, what's all going on right now. I know you have a long-term vision. How, how do you like, how do you envision like the, the short-term goals to get to a point where you'll probably raise enough money to then really invest in that manufacturing process. Like how are you thinking about that transition to ultimately building for the, for the affordable housing problem that you originally set out to solve for? Yeah, I think that we had a very grounded approach with the way that we came about uh, into the market. We knew that, you know, there are other players in the industry and space. Um, I've spoken to several of, you know, quote unquote, our competitors or collaborators. um, And, and, and the truth is, is that in this market, it's it is a very difficult venture to scale, especially if you're going after housing. I mean, interest rates are out the roof. Mm-hmm. So um, we wanted to be very wary of that and take a very grounded, realistic approach with starting off with sheds, then focusing on backyard homes and ADUs, and then eventually one day potentially being able to get to single family homes. Um, so that being said, we've operated in a very lean way. Um, we've got a small team that is, you know, uh, very specialized and really good at, um, you know, what they're doing on the engineering front, the design front. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say that our approach has been to, uh, do as much as possible with as less as possible. And, um, yeah, the team has been fantastic and, and it's been exciting to see all the demand that we've received. Yeah. I think you just touched on it there, but what's your general philosophy on fundraising versus bootstrapping, not getting in over your skis, but also not going underwater? Yeah. Um, I think in this market, I would advise anyone to do whatever you can to be bootstrapped. Um, unfortunately with industry, we chose it is a capital intensive industry and we've had to raise money for it. But, um, that being said, uh, my recommendation in this market would be to do whatever you can for as long as possible to be bootstrapped. Um, but there was a time when capital was free as well. So, you know, you talk COVID or pre COVID, um, everyone, you know, a lot of our competitors were there about seven, eight years ago and have raised 70 mil to date. Um, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I mean, the, the market's kind of correcting itself and showing that, but, um, with us, we, we've raised the minimum to be able to get to a proof of concept and be able to prove it out. Um, of course, we're going to, you know, despite the very un, very low chance of success in this industry or in startups in general, we're doing everything we can to be able to get out there and deliver to customers. 
So what does it look like for the next stage? I think you're re still raising a seed round? Yeah, so we're, we're getting in the process of raising a seed round now okay. and just recently started that. And um, yeah, that is primarily to scale up production, make key hires, and then be able to increase ramp up marketing and expand other markets. And what's the ideal investor look like to you? The ideal investor for us is familiar with the prop tech space, knows about regulated industries like construction and real estate, um, construction tech focused, and um, yeah, is, is you know primarily a seed investor, ideally strategic to an extent, but um, yeah, just somebody you know somebody that has knowledge in the space. We wish you really good luck with that. Thank you. Um, is, is that an immediate? like an immediate need or you guys have runway and you're just looking for the right time, the right partner? Yeah, uh, a little bit of both. Um, we've hit the primary goals and metrics that we were looking to off the pre-seed and um, now ready to take it to the next level. Um, we've got, like I mentioned, uh, a good bit of interest and demand from customers, but in order to scale up that production, um, we've already gone ahead and taken steps to outsource manufacturing, which has been a key step, and then now building up our team and, and increasing our operations and bandwidth to be able to grow outside of four full-time employees. And so a little bit of a loaded question here, but Walking through your previous entrepreneurial journey, right? You started with the app. What was it called? Flappy. Flappy it was called Flappy Yeet. Flappy. Hell yeah, <laughs> love it. Yeah. So from that to Linker, yeah. right, and then Vade. Now you're on Krava. Curious, how long you see yourself staying with working with Krava? Are you already thinking about new ideas? Obviously, being two founders at once, it wouldn't be the first time it's ever happened, but. When you're really sinking all your effort into one thing, it's hard to make time for anything else. Yeah, when I, I think the answer to that question right now is whenever I'm working on a, a venture, especially now, uh, that is my 100% focus. I, I think it's there's very few people like Elon that can do <laughs> you know five different unicorns at once. Um, that being said, that's from experience because I tried doing college, uh, running a startup and running an agency all at the same time, and I can tell you it doesn't bode well. Um, <laughs> and being and, a student. And being a student, <laughs> yeah, and being a student. Um, so took a year off, and parents didn't want me dropping out, and so took a year off, and then uh, even then it was very difficult to manage. So I would say that right now this is a, a, a massive challenge of its own, and this is my only focus at this time, and doing everything we can to be able to pan out to see this in, in homeowners' backyards. Yeah, we're excited to see that, and hopefully we'll have our Venture Pill off-site <laughs> studio in Akrava K1 Absolutely. soon enough. I look uh, forward to one, one Venture Pill way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the address has changed every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, we, we have a series of questions to sort of wrap up each interview, and you've given some advice already, but like maybe for folks who aren't necessarily founders, folks who listen to this podcast, we call them the Pilgrims, I um, like that. Yeah, pilgrims, the venture yeah. pilgrims. Very cool. Um, advice for anyone looking to get into this world of venture, whether they're young or old, but maybe just new to this space, what, what would come to mind? Yeah, I'd say that in, in terms of like the world of venture in general, I think despite how market is proving to be right now a very difficult place, I think that it's also the time for opportunity and be able to prove yourself mm -hmm. as well. Even when you look at the 2008 or any of the crashes, dot-com boom as well, there are several... Uh, amazing companies that come out of it. And I think in today's world, it's just important to keep an eye out on all the problems that are coming out. I mean, you've got um, defense tech companies coming in, you've got AI all over the place. And so I think it's important to identify what is that passion or what is that interest or problem that you're looking to solve and going nose deep. I mean, I didn't know it. Truthfully, I didn't know anything about the construction space a year ago, if you asked me. And I always like to think that if you give your all for six months and you go and talk to experts, you go and read about it, 
get in front of the problem, you can learn very quickly. I mean, some of the architects and some of the people that we've spoken to, they're always surprised. They're like, yeah. you guys have just been around for a year. Like, how do you know all of this that, you know, <laughs> we've been around for a decade and it's just pure passion. So I would recommend people to explore your passion and then talk to people that you know, know about the space and do whatever you can to get involved. I think that this is the best time to get involved in meaningful problems. Love that. That's, that's yeah. awesome advice. Getting to know a little bit more about you as we wrap up here, any books or podcasts that have shaped you along your journey that you recommend? Yeah, I, I don't want to sound basic here, but the All In podcast is something I religiously listen to every week. I think it's a great way to learn about key problems, current events that are going on. That's something that I would highly recommend listening to. I mean, I've put my girlfriend on it. And <laughs> so that's that's something that's super important for me to listen to every week, just because I like being up to date on, you know, current events. Outside of that, books to read. I mean, <laughs> Zero to One is a book that I, is probably on my top, Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a handful of books, but I, I truly think that the best way to get and immerse yourself in entrepreneurship is by doing. I don't really read all that much anymore today, but I mean, outside of like real estate and construction yeah. and, and reading regulations, but uh, <laughs> riveting stuff, <laughs> yeah, very fun. Um, but outside of that, I, I would always recommend just by doing, you know, mm-hmm. it, what do you lose by just going and trying something out? And, and if it fails, you've learned, you know, there's, mm-hmm. it's not failure, it's learning. Absolutely. Absolutely. We always like to get your perspective on other startups you may be in, in contact with or that you see maybe they're in Austin or not, but ones that we should keep our eye out for. Yeah, there's there's plenty of startups that are doing really cool stuff. My my favorite one that I've seen recently is Phil Startup. They're focused on essentially being able to take hardware products and be able to convert it to an, an instruction manual where it's like using AI and we've actually gotten a pilot for it. So mm. to give a good example of it, this unit behind me, uh, we would essentially have contractors install. And once it gets to site, we need to have an installation manual. Well, this tool is essentially making it so that it can take the CAD design and essentially get build out a full instruction manual wow. using AI. So uh, what was that called? It's uh, Direc, I think. Is uh, I'm, I'm blanking out on the name. Okay. It starts with a D, but I'll, yeah. I'll find it and send it to you. Yeah. It's weird that I'm blanking on it because I just emailed him. Um, <laughs> but outside of that in Austin, there's a, a ton of amazing founders. And there's a startup called Pipe Dream Labs run by my good friends Garrett and Drew. Mm-hmm. And they're focused on making underground delivery happen in 30 seconds uh, or less. And so essentially they're, they believe in pipes underground and essentially building a network where you know, you can order something from your house and then, you know, let's say Uber eats and it delivers right to your door would definitely take a look at them. And, uh, yeah, I I could go down a list, but there's so many founders in Austin building great things. That's a good one for you to kind of not, not collaborators, like you said earlier, like kind of adjacent space. We've joked about it. We've joked about the idea of like having a Krava space in a backyard and as a home office and you just like ship, like, you know, you get something transported right to your K1. (laughs) That is the the future is now. Yeah. The future is now. Absolutely. The future is now. (laughs) One question, just want to tap into your unique experience and perspective here as a 3X, 4X founder. What's something that may be contrary to the mainstream perception of being a founder, being your own boss? That, uh, you know, being your own boss means you can do whatever with your time, I think is a common misconception. I mean, I think most startup folks, that's not, no, that's not the truth, but 
this is a investment in like this is almost like a baby is the best way to describe it where you have to nurture it you have to you know you have problems you have challenges it's like a you know seed that you want to grow into a healthy plant and sometimes the soil isn't always fertile and so timing is very important what season you know and so i'd say that if you're getting ready to launch a startup or even work at a startup you have to be ready to go through you know, ups and downs. You have to be ready for decisions that are made on the spot, especially as a founder, a lot of your decisions, you're, you're making a few decisions, but they make or break the company. There could be serious consequences. Uh, there could be serious benefits. And so I would say, think very carefully before you make the decision, because it's not a one year, two year, you know, hobby type thing. Like you're you're hopefully thinking about the 10 year, where, where does this company go 10 years from now? And will this still be a thing? And, mm-hmm. and so I, I think thinking big is one of the biggest aspects to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think if we could end this interview in any way, that, that, that would be a good way to wrap it up. Ritwick, awesome, awesome. Thanks for having us here and, and such a such a cool experience to come Beautiful out here studio. and do this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank next, you guys for having me. Next time, it'll be in the full-scale production facility. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the one, one last thing before we let you go. What's the best way for our listeners yeah. to connect with you, follow along with what's going on with Krava, your personal life? Sure. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter, so you can just uh, put it at my full name. So at Ritwick Pavan, R-I-T-W-I-K-P-A-V-A-N. And then our website is getcrava.com, or you can also follow me on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, that that's probably the best way to communicate. We'll awesome. put all that in our show notes, get a good summary of, of what we've talked about today. And yeah, we're, we're really excited to keep, keep tabs. We're always keeping tabs, <laughs> but this one holds a special place in our hearts. So we'll, I appreciate we'll it, certainly guys. be in touch. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another dose of startups and venture capital. And as always, we appreciate our pilgrims spreading the word about the show. Share with your friends and help someone else make the pilgrimage. See you next time. She told me that she only bumps my music when she's lonely. Thinks my vibe's a little low-key, okey-dokey, that's alright, but wait, I don't know how to do things different.